The blueberry industry is like no other. Passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the production, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of the Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. A lot of you will remember episode 15, where we sat down and talked to Denny Doyle about the history of blueberries there in New Jersey. Uh, that episode actually inspired a, a couple of conversations. It was such a popular episode that we wanted to take that concept and explore another important blueberry growing region in Florida. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Paul Lyrene, the world-renowned plant breeder who dedicated his life's career to the development of early ripening, high quality blueberry cultivars that are productive in Florida's humid subtropical climate. His work has not only been critical to the development of the Florida blueberry industry, but to the growth and expansion we've seen in California, Georgia, and has also allowed production in many countries, including Spain, Morocco, Peru, Chile, Argentina, Australia, South Africa, and Mexico. As University of Florida horticulture professor, Dr. Jeff Williamson says, the Florida blueberry industry quite simply would not exist today if not for Dr. Lyrene's work. Paul retired from the University of Florida in 2009, but we're lucky to have him here on the show today to share some of his decades of blueberry knowledge. Paul, we could probably fill multiple episodes with your background in blueberries, but maybe a good place to start is with the history of blueberries in Florida. There was a blueberry planting in 1886 near Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, using plants that were dug up out of the forest and planted in rows. The most famous early one was 1893. A person called Moses Sapp planted an acre of blueberries up in Crestview, which is in the Panhandle of Florida. He spaced about 12 by 12 and cultivated them with mules in both directions. And there's some old pictures in some of the Florida State Hort Society meetings about him up on a ladder that looks like 20 feet high, picking blueberries, like a half gram blueberries, out of the top of these bushes. Then during the 1920s, there was like a, a land boom craze in Florida, and everybody was trying to sell northern people land in Florida. And the railroad had a lot of land because they'd been given land alongside the railroad track. If they'd build a track, the state would give them free land, like a mile on each side of the track. And once they'd cut the pine trees down, they didn't have anything to do with the land. So they were trying to sell it to people, and it really didn't have much value. But they went over to Moses Sapp, whose planting by then was about 30 years old, and picked all the berries off of one bush and found out he had like 40 pounds of berries on that bush. So they printed up this brochure saying, if you plant blueberries in Florida, you can get this many pounds per acre and sell them for 50 cents a quart or whatever and be rich. So they sold 2,000 acres of land in Florida, which got planted to blueberries before 1930. And so connect that dot for me in terms of that expansion of, of blueberries and the history with New Jersey. Is, was there a connection at all? I mean, is this happening in any relationship to overall consumer awareness or understanding of where blueberries comes from? Can you give me some perspective on that? Well, first of all, none of those Florida acres ever got marketed. The berries were too small. They got ripe in the middle of the summer when it was blazing hot. Nobody had any refrigeration, no way to get things to market. So the whole 2,000 acres was basically abandoned. And 
When I came to work on blueberries in 1977, we walked literally hundreds of acres of wild blueberries that were grown up in piney woods, spaced out 12 by 12, just as perfect as they could be. So basically, it was a total bust. It never never made any money for anybody. One of the things that killed it was the depression. The other was that it just wasn't practical to pick those small berries from those tall bushes. And the, the particular plants that were planted were just dug up out of the forest in the winter, and, and they had never been selected for anything. So when the New Jersey varieties that Colville had developed started marketing berries, they were so much superior in quality that that and the depression and the infeasibility of the whole project pretty well did it in. Yeah. So the, so the only marketing that was going on was those brochures that suggested that you do this and you'll get rich. Yeah. <laughs> they sold a lot of land with it. And a lot of people that grew up in, this, in that region picked the berries and, for their home, home use. And Alto Strawn, who was our biggest blueberry grower in Florida, uh, grew up picking those berries from uh, a little patch that was on his grandmother's farm, I think. Well, we're going to hear a lot more uh, from Paul on the evolution of the industry in Florida. But first, let's take a quick break for our crop report. During this time of year, we get reports from important blueberry growing regions like Mexico, Peru, and Chile. So here, once again, is your blueberry crop report. It's time now for your blueberry crop report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry areas around the globe. Today, you'll hear from Luis Vegas in Peru and Juan Soria Morales in Mexico. This was recorded on December 16th, 2020. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Luis with the crop report from Peru. So up until the end of week 50, Peru has shipped a total of 326 million pounds of fresh blueberries worldwide. This represents an increase of 35% versus the previous season. Uh, from this total volume of 326 million pounds, 53% has been shipped to the U.S. with 172 million pounds. During week 50, which is the week that goes from Monday the 7th until the 13th of December, Peru shipped a total of 5.3 million pounds, uh, which is a smaller amount in comparison to the previous season. So up until the end of week 50, we have shipped already 91% of all the volume forecasted. That's the report from Peru until the end of week 50. In week 50, Mexico exported a total of 1,967,300 pounds. Of those pounds, 1,910,000 went to the North American market, including United States and Canada. Until today, total Mexico exports are 6,825,530 pounds total. And to the U.S., we have exported 6,438,025 pounds. Compared to last season, the volume exported to the United States is 9% higher than 2019-2020 season. Finally, for week 51, we expect to have near 2 million ten uh, pounds. That's the report for Mexico so far. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much to our colleagues from around Latin America who take the time to participate in these crop reports. I've received some great feedback from folks in our industry who have really appreciated the continuation of our crop report and the reports coming in from Chile, Peru, and Mexico. 
But now let's jump back into our conversation here with Dr. Paul Lyrene. Paul, let's go back to that early history of blueberries in Florida. When did the high bush industry start to develop? Yeah, uh, the blueberries that were grown in Florida were rabbit eyes, and it's native in Florida. But the USDA in about uh, 1940 decided they were going to have a breeding program to improve the rabbit eye blueberry using the stuff that grows wild in Florida. And that program was started and centered in Tifton, Georgia. So varieties like Tiff Blue and Climax and Woodard and Brightwell were developed out of that program. And they became the blueberry industry in Georgia all during the 70s and 80s. There were probably 10,000 acres of improved rabbit eyes that were grown in Georgia. And when I came to work in Florida in 1977, essentially the whole Florida industry consisted of 200 acres of the Tifton type improved rabbit eyes that were pick your own in Florida. But the guy that started breeding highbush in Florida, Ralph Sharp, in 1948, he saw that there were some major problems with the rabbit eyes, principally that they got ripe later. When you grow rabbit eyes in Florida, they get ripe later than highbush in North Carolina and New Jersey because they take forever to get ripe once they bloom. So Ralph Sharp said, well, we've got the climate here to be a month earlier than North Carolina, but the only way to capture that is to abandon rabbit eyes and plant highbush. But unfortunately, the Colville, New Jersey-type highbush, when planted in Florida, didn't do. They would start blooming and leafing out in June rather than in February when they were supposed to. So these improved highbush were taken first from New Jersey down to North Carolina, and it turned out that the farthest southeast you could bring those things was Wilmington, North Carolina. So the industry grew up in, in North Carolina, but not in Florida. And so Ralph Sharp knew that the only problem with the things was that they didn't get enough cold in the winter. And he knew how to solve that problem. And that's kind of the history of how we got started breeding in blueberries in Florida. So he chose to grab the high bush as that uh, natural northern version. And then do you know what was the wild variety in Florida that he crossed with first? The one he chose, and he chose this after much consultation with the U.S. Department of Agriculture botanist, the one he chose was Vaccinium Darawai. And it is a low-growing evergreen plant, grows down to about Fort Myers is the southern end of the range of that one. It had a lot of problems with it. It was like the berries are very small. They were not early ripening. It was hard to cross with the high bush because the chromosome number was different. And the bushes are little squatty things that don't ever get any size to them. So the original hybrids then had to be worked with a lot in order to get the combination that you wanted. So Sharp starts with that one. And uh, talk to me a little bit about how you got involved, uh, you know, in terms of that 1977, you know, walking into the blueberry industry. You know, where, 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 did, where were you coming from and, and what brought you into this industry? I had a, a degree in plant breeding from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I had worked on cereals, so oats was my crop. When I got out of graduate school, I took a job breeding sugarcane in Canal Point, Florida, way down in the south. And the method of breeding sugarcane was almost exactly the same as the method Ralph Sharp was using to breed blueberries. So when I got up to, I, I just saw the, a, a job announcement that Ralph was retiring and the, there was a job available for breeding blueberries in Gainesville. And Canal Point was a little bit lonesome for an unmarried 
person's fresh out of graduate school. I wanted to go up to Gainesville and maybe teach and <laughs> get some socialization in. <laughs> and so I took the job and pretty much all the methods that I used in breeding were sort of a hybrid between the way they were breeding sugarcane and Canal Point. And they'd been doing that for like 80 years by the time I got there. And the way uh, Ralph Sharp had been breeding blueberries in Gainesville. There are different ways of doing crops depending on the nature of the crop, but blueberries are uh, a plant in which the varieties are clones. That is, you find one good plant, you chop it into 100 million pieces, and each one becomes a plant that's identical to the original plant. Okay, strawberries are that way, potatoes are that way, probably maybe 10% of the world's crops are that way. But the clonally propagated crops are worldwide bred in almost the same way. Because of my experience with agronomic crops and with sugarcane, that combination gave me an insight as to what I really needed to do. So where where was the program when Ralph retired and you were coming on board in, in terms of the breeding program in there, Florida? How would you, you know, how would you characterize, you know, what, what he was handing to you? Well, the first three cultivars, which were Sharp Blue, Florida Blue, and Avon Blue, had been released the year before. I took over. And there were a lot of advanced selections in the pipeline, what we call a pipeline. Between the time you make the cross and plant the seed, it's about 12 years before you release a variety. And most of those years have to do with testing. And the biggest part of plant breeding is to figure out which of these thousands and thousands of plants is the best one. There's no way to speed that thing up. And so there's Testing is, is the most expensive and the most labor-intensive and time-consuming part of the whole breeding program. So the pipeline was full. There were seeds in the refrigerator that I, would, I was supposed to plant then, all the way through varieties that were one year away from being released. All these different 12 years, every stage of the way had some clones in it. So it was set up. Uh, I, I just plugged myself in and started churning things out. And it rapidly became apparent where we needed to go from where we were. The growers were getting a high price for the berries, but they basically could not grow the things. So one of the things that held us back for 30 years in Florida is nobody knew how to grow a blueberry in Florida, a highbush blueberry. We have good acid soil, but our water has a pH of 7.6. You start irrigating acid sand with high pH water, about six months, the pH of the soil is the same as the water. And blueberries are not going to grow at pH 7.6. So we had that. We had the varieties. We had developed a flower in February. We get late freezes into March that can kill the flowers. So that was a big problem. When you have a small blueberry planting of a few acres uh, in Florida that ripen in April or May, the birds will eat 100% of them not 99%, they eat 100%. So we had bad water quality in terms of too much bicarbonate in the groundwater. We had the freeze problem. We had the bird problem. People didn't really take seriously the cross-pollination requirement of the varieties that we had. So they planted solid blocks and they didn't yield right. So it was a learning process. And there were a lot of people that knew a lot of more about blueberries than we did in Florida. The Michigan Blueberry Association, as soon as they started getting involved in marketing, helped us a lot. We were like really in the, in the dark about how to grow the crop. So that, in association with the limited experience with the varieties, really held us back. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break for our marketing boost segment. We'll be back with Paul in a moment. But for now, here's USHBC NABC Vice President of Marketing and Communications, Jennifer Sparks. Thank you, Casey. Today, I'd like to talk about passion. Recently, as I was texting with a friend, the subject of blueberries came up and she said, I eat them every day. No other fruit matters. That is not just a blueberry purchaser. That's a passionate consumer of the healthy handful of blue deliciousness. So how do we instill this passion and get more people to experience blueberries in new and different ways? Let's start with USHBC's new brand positioning, Grab a Boost of Blue. It's a strong call to action that is descriptive, memorable, and relatable, no matter your lifestyle. And with the new year just around the corner, USHBC is hard at work on 2021 programs, all designed to promote blueberry use throughout the day and increase demand throughout the year. How can we take what will be happening through USHBC's consumer programs and make it work tenfold? By getting you and the whole industry involved. We're working on a wealth of online tools and resources to help you drive year-round sales. How can you capitalize on that right now? Go to ushbc.org license. There, you can sign the license agreement to gain free access to the series of Grab a Boost of Blue logos and style guide, so you're ready once the tools are released later this month. Please join us in turning blueberry consumers into passionate blueberry enthusiasts. This has been your Marketing Boost. Thank you for your partnership, as together we inspire the world to experience the amazing benefits of blueberries. Back to you, Casey. All right. Thanks so much, Jenny. Now let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Paul Irene. We do tastings at our office, uh, especially since I've gotten here. I've really forced the issue of, of everybody eating more blueberries. Listening to you talk, uh, you know, it, it makes me think about people who you know, sample coffee or wine and they can tell you where it was grown. It seems like in wine, it's like the side of the ditch this stuff was grown on for how it becomes valuable and, and the distinctions of the flavor. So how is that for you from an experience? Are you able to tell varieties of uh, blueberries by taste and where they were grown based on all the years of breeding and cultivating? Well, the flavor of a blueberry depends both on the variety and where it's grown and how it's grown. And the flavor components that are, there's probably a thousand different chemicals in a blueberry that are natural compounds that all have some influence on the flavor. But usually we think of the big ones are the, the sugars, are they high and low in, or low in sugar? The acids, are they high or low in acid? And then a gigantic lumped category called the aromatic compounds. Do they have sort of a vanilla flavor or do they have a, a mint flavor or do they have a wintergreen flavor? And mostly so far people have concentrated on the sugars and the acids because you want a nice ratio I think a wonderful, interesting future lies in breeding the aromatic because there's certain varieties that just taste special because they don't taste like sugar and, and acid. On top of that, they've got this very interesting, complex aromatic. And I think the industry is getting more interested in that. The problem with it is now that unless you're vertically integrated, you as the grower do not get paid more necessarily for a really good tasting blueberry than you do for an adequate blueberry. And that's been a limiting factor in the past. The few people that have really 
capitalized on uh, berries that have unusually good eating qualities are ones that they own the farm, they own the marketing organization, and they talk to the buyers. So it's like all the way from the bottom up to the top. If you have to deal with a complex chain in which I have to sell my blueberries to a marketer, the marketer then has to sell the blueberries to somebody, I don't get paid twice as much for a blueberry that's five times better to eat. As you're describing, you know, ways in which you envision success in the future for our industry through the innovation of breeding and genetics tied to marketing, what other recommendations or advice as to, you know, how do we move forward from here and increase our overall success? Our tomato breeder retired some years ago. He gave a lecture on his retirement. He said the plant breeder is breeding for three different groups. He's breeding for the grower. Variety's got to be easy to grow. He's breeding for the marketer. The thing's got to ship well and get ripe at the right time. And he's breeding for the consumer, the people that actually eat the things. So, so the variety has to, to be okay for all three of those different groups. There's some really, really some far out things that can happen to blueberries that are on the horizon. And I think they'll be done in the next 30 years. If you look at some close blueberry relatives, for example, the bilberry in Europe is much esteemed because of its extremely strong pigmentation. If you open up a, a bilberry, it's black inside or dark purple. And the Europeans really like that. If you take a fresh blueberry and open it up, it's green inside or white. And the Europeans have always looked down on the American blueberry because of that feature. There's no reason why we can't turn the American blueberry or the high bush blueberry to having a black flesh. Can be done. The uh, exotic flavors, I've mentioned already, there's a lot of different types of exotic flavors that would really enhance, I think, the marketing of the blueberry. The textures, the, the crisp ones, uh, I think are much more uh, liked than the softer ones. There are some genetics that makes blueberries extremely crisp. You could make them like a Fuji apple when you bite into the things. I remember one of our selections, uh, Sweet Crisp, when we first put it out, my wife made a pie out of it. And when the pie was baked, we opened it up and the blueberries were all intact. They hadn't broken whatsoever in the baking process. And so it was a very strange pie. <laughs> but to eat that thing fresh, it's like everybody's favorite. All the growers say, well, I'll plant like 15 plants of that so I can eat them, but I'm not going to plant it for commercial production because it doesn't yield enough. And then one of the grower things I think that's important, uh, we're having as the blueberry plantings get larger and larger and the bees get fewer and fewer, it gets harder and harder to get the plants pollinated right. And so we lose a lot of yield in many years in the, in the South because there's not enough bees. The blueberry flower designed to be pollinated by one particular bee, and that's not the honeybee because honeybees are old world and blueberries are new world. The bumblebee and the southeastern blueberry bee are the pollinators of blueberries. And that all worked good when we had five-acre farms, but when you have 100-acre farms, there are not enough of those bees to go around. So we have to redesign the flower so the bee can easily, any, any bee, including honeybee, can easily go inside there and, and get the pollen. Those are a few changes that could be made. Then the, the whole thing about health benefits, you know, there's there's a lot of beneficial uh, things in blueberries. And 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 if you look at bilberries and lingonberries and cranberries and, and um, oh, there's a pile of different wild blueberries that you can take genes out of and put into, into high bush blueberries. 
those have their own unique uh, chemistries that some of which might be really good for you. So there's just an endless amount of stuff that yet could be done. My question related to that is, you know, we see these proprietary breeding programs now that are private breeding programs, unlike the University of Florida system or, or Michigan State. You know, what's your sense of the future of breeding blueberries and its relationship to, you know, your history in this work and the university system's responsibility to it? Where do you see these breeding programs going? Well, I've got some concerns there, but also some optimism. Some of the private breeding programs are really well run, and the people are maybe better breeders than us at the university who are messing around with all kinds of peripheral things like publishing papers. One of the problems, I think, with the growers is now there's like 100 varieties from 20 different sources that are available to you in your county where you're trying to grow blueberries. How do you figure out which one to plant? And that becomes a huge task. When, when I was breeding blueberries in Florida, I thought one of my main tasks was to sort of keep the growers informed as to how all the varieties I had released were doing. So some of them I would release in year one. Three years later, I would say to the growers at a field day, please do not plant that variety. It is no good. We didn't realize it did this or that when we released it. So it, we were going to unrelease it. You know, you make mistakes. <laughs> There's really nobody doing that. Almost every grower has to figure it out for him or herself these days. That's one problem. The other problem is is long-range uh, planning. If you take two blueberry varieties and cross them together and grow 10,000 seedlings, there will not be two seedlings alike in that whole group. If you grow 100,000 seedlings from that cross, there won't be two alike. If you grow 100 million, there won't be two of them alike. So you say, well, I'm just going to take these two parents and grow bigger and bigger and bigger populations. And every time you do that, you have the possibility of hitting a home run. Like this one is better than the 10 million I grew before. It's a great variety. But that's a bad concept to have in breeding. The only way to have really predictable progress is to keep changing the parents. When I was breeding blueberries, I always divided the, the whole thing conceptually into two parts. One is develop varieties that can be released. The other is to breed better parents because you're not gonna get better seedlings if you don't have better parents. And the strategy of how to breed better parents is a little bit more complex than the strategy of how to develop a good variety. They're very interrelated, but they're somewhat distinct. And one of my worries about the private programs is they can't afford to, to be doing something that's not going to pay off for 40 years. And I, as a retired University of Florida professor, am now doing things that I don't think are going to pay off for 40 years. I'm not going to be around to see them, but I know this needs to be done so that just like Ralph Sharp in 1948 said, this needs to be done. And he basically retired before anything came of it. Uh, he passed that on to his successors. So the long-range strategy has always been a worry with plant breeders uh, in the public sector is how do you do these basic research type of things that are very beneficial but don't have a quick payoff? Yeah, well, and I, I say we thank a breeder, you know, who uh, starts thinking about these things in ways that you do, that only you do. For those of us that just benefit from eating the fruit, there's a lot of years that go into getting 
to the place that you've taken us. And I just want to say thank you for the work you've done. I know you're a hall of famer down there in Florida, but you know, having been in this business for as long as I've been working here at the USHBC, uh, your reputation precedes you. And, you know, I think we're all very grateful for your life's work and helping make blueberries the business that it is today. So thank you very much. Yeah, and I would also uh, like to say that Florida is not the only area that has been breeding low chill uh, at the university level. Poplarville, Mississippi, USDA station been very useful. The variety Biloxi came out of Poplarville. North Carolina State University's breeding program was has provided germplasm that we used in breeding that was really important to us. So we'll take all the credit, but we don't deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> well. I understand. And, and, and blueberries has certainly been a team sport. So I think you rightly make the point that this has been a, a lot of good collaboration among many partners over many, many, many years. But again, having you know leadership like yours, thinking through some of the things that wouldn't otherwise be considered by some of us who you know aren't thinking 40 years out or even past how this might benefit somebody else after I'm gone. It's just that part of things. It's just always remarkable. So We'll let you go, but we'll probably have you back. And uh, we really appreciate your time here today. Yeah, I enjoyed the podcast. I listened to most all of them. It's very nice. Well, that was a fascinating conversation with Dr. Lyrene. And I think there are so many key takeaways from this episode, so many things we still could continue to discuss. Some of those that come to top of mind for me, though, are just how much effort uh, the industry there in Florida has gone. I mean, just the history of uh, the early plantings and then, you know, the relationship it's had with the university over time and, and certainly admire Paul and, and his career there. But the importance of breeding and genetics to capture the quality of the northern highbush blueberry, but adapting that to the warmer climate and, and just the time it takes and the work that was done over all these years to bring us where we're, where we're at today as an industry. You know, and I found it fascinating just to hear him kind of talk about the nature of which he sees that evolution continuing to grow, including the point he made. And I should have asked him more about where he saw things in the next 30 years, but he kind of hinted at there's a lot more to come. And that is exciting for those of us that are in this business who recognize how important innovation is to the future of our industry, that somebody with his tenure who may not be able to see what they've been working on come to the fruition, but that it's in the pipeline. And it's coming. And there's uh, a lot more for us to get excited about than maybe we can see today because of the work of people like Paul. So I'm always impressed with the kinds of things that you get out of these conversations, uh, certainly with somebody with his tenure in this business. But other things that I think you know we discussed that uh, really caught my attention from his perspective was where he sees uh, opportunities for breeding some of these more niche varieties and and the relationship that they may have to the market over time. You know, we're seeing some of that today, uh, but interesting to hear him describe, you know, where there's a future in that going forward or not. But based on his perspective, the opportunity for there to be more from those more aromatic opportunities of varieties and, and how those might come forward in future opportunities for growers and, and the industry. And I, I think the other thing that would be exciting to see develop over time in terms of that future is just the interest of, of seeing how to improve color, how to improve that crispness. I really want to actually see if I can talk him into having one of those pies sent over. But just the idea that, you know, there is more coming in ways that, you know, will improve things like pollination and how important that's going to be to the sustainability of our business over time. So 
incredible discussion, an incredible career. I think that's why lots of you are tuning in to hear more about the business of blueberries. But that's it for episode 29. Uh, This has been a great episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. The podcast has certainly been something that's been a highlight in 2020 that we want to make better for you in 2021. So let us know if you have any other suggestions for topics or guests that we should get on the show. You know, I want to thank Ken Patterson for recommending Dr. Lyrene for this episode. And if you're listening and have a recommendation, please reach out. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show and, and the direction we're headed with providing more people information about this business we're in, the business of Blueberry. So thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the business of Blueberries. Blueberries.